I work in film, so I, we have a lot of conflict on set all the time. Like, even with my brother, like, it's just we have very different personality types. It's kind of finding a way to, to find a middle ground. I'm kind of a mediator, a conciliator. I'm always at peace with people, so I, I don't have these kind of conflicts. On this episode of Relate, conflict. It is the true test of a relationship, whether it's a minor disagreement between friends or a full-blown war between nations. Conflict is a part of life. The trick is not to avoid it, but to manage it before it gets out of hand. Because conflict isn't always negative. In fact, it's often necessary for growth. Coming up on the Relate podcast, the story of a minor conflict that led a 12-year-old boy to start a notorious street gang You'll hear about a friendship that blossomed during the Iraq War. And you'll get some useful tips on managing conflict from a former NCAA referee. You're listening to Relate. You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk builds software for better customer relationships. For better customer relationships. I'm Tamara Stanners, and this is Relate by Zendesk. It's a show all about relationships, the good, the bad, and the complicated. The Iraq War falls pretty squarely into the bad and complicated categories. But this story is about an unlikely bond that was made stronger by the very conflict it grew out of. The bond that two people will share is like no other than soldiers that have been through combat. And when you're in battle, it's no longer what cause you're fighting for. You're fighting to stay alive for the person that's to your right and to your left. I am closer to my comrades than I am to my own family. This is Sergeant Paul Braun. He joined the military back in 2009. The reason? He knew a lot of soldiers who were on their second and third tours in Iraq, and he felt he had a duty to get involved. Now, for a lot of soldiers, being deployed overseas means saying goodbye to family, and that's really difficult. But it wasn't so hard for Paul. I was married at the time, and I uh, divorced from that person. It was a a very bad relationship, (laughs) put it that way. And, you know, for me, it was like kind of being on a vacation from it. Paul was deployed to Iraq and stationed in the southern town of Basra. His team was responsible for guarding the checkpoints in and out of their base. Paul came into contact with a lot of local Iraqis during the first few weeks of the tour. But he wasn't exactly friendly with any of them. I was not very fond of them. It was very difficult to try and differentiate between those that were there to help and those that were there to hurt us. We know nothing about America except they are coming to kicking the doors, killing the people, stealing our oil, uh, destroy our country and go home. This is Philip. He was distrustful of the American military, but he had three kids, a wife and his mother to support. And he spoke English better than a lot of locals. So he decided to apply for a job as an interpreter. And he got it. 
all of a sudden we have a decent income to raise our family. Imagine how much they appreciate that. Well, when we, we first heard that we were getting a new interpreter, um, they gave us his real name and say, you know, he, this man is going to be your interpreter and assigned to you. We're like, okay. And so when I, when I went to him, I introduced myself. He, he gave me this like, this harsh, uh, angry look. And he was like so tough with me, but I was like smiling and laughing at him. So he told me, if you try to mess with me or with my soldier, I'm just going to shoot you. And he laughed. And I look at him, I'm like, do you think there's something funny about this conversation? And he says to me, someday we will sit in America and drink tea and laugh at this conversation. And it was at that point where I knew that this guy was going to be okay. The first thing I think everybody notices about Philip is his smile. Because it's a very genuine, huge smile that he has. Philip's pretty amazing in the aspect where there's nobody that has met him that does not like him. Paul, he's some unique personality. During my life, I never met someone like Paul. His parents, when they raised him, they raised him very well. He never been rude or mean with the local nationals. You can tell he respects the other side. We had a lot of downtime. Um, someone had sent us a bunch of golf clubs and golf balls. And we would drive golf balls into an old abandoned minefield thinking it was pretty cool if we could try and blow up mine so philip comes over and he's like what is this and is this this golf game I'm like yeah and he try and i tell you this bedouin swung a club like 80 times and maybe connected with the ball once he just couldn't hit it so we kept laughing at him i taught him how to put the head cover like prince or shake and i taught him how to grow his beard when he left the army i taught him a lot of things about our culture Here, this guy comes to become an interpreter or translator and has to leave his family for months at a time to be able to do this very, very dangerous job. So, of course, we're asking about his wife and his children, and, and he's explaining to us about how his son is growing up and his two little girls at the time. And I was still very guarded with Philip, but I also was very relieved to see how he was taking our side and how he was becoming one of us. And we were spending 18 hours a day in the sun. 125, 135, and one day it was 142 degrees, you know, in full kit. And uh, you spend that much time with a guy, doesn't matter their nationality, you get to know somebody. And then as time went on, he just became one of us. You know, he ended up fighting with us, he mourned with us, he bled with us, he became one of us. When the British left is when things got really bad, they literally stopped weeks ahead of schedule and said, we're done, there's no more missions, we're packing up early, we're going home. So here we had all the interpreters for the British forces that had to come onto the base, and we had to stop them and say, sorry, but you're no longer allowed to be on the base anymore. We have to take your IDs. Well, a couple days later is when the first of the bodies started being brought to us. It was really 24-7 worry. Everyone look at me, I think he's going to kill me. You don't know who's your enemy. You don't know who's on your side or not. The militia at that time, they were like so strong in Basra. And they start hunting down most of the interpreters. And a family would walk up with a body and say, this is my father, my brother, my cousin, my whoever. And last night, the militias came out and they executed him. 
That was the first of 19 bodies that we had brought to us. So if you can picture Philip interpreting over the slain body of a person who's doing the exact same job that he is. And that's when Philip and I went off to the side one day and he said, so what's going to happen to me when you leave? And I said, you know what's going to happen to you. We've talked about this before. You're already pretty much marked for death. Not too long after this conversation, Paul's tour in Iraq ended. It was time for him to go home. The night before Paul's departure, Philip snuck into his housing unit to see his friend. We had that long conversation of goodbye, and... It was too hard. Like, I went to his uh, place, and it was sad, emotion day. Having a friend like Philip that you're now leaving behind, that you know there's a really good chance you're never going to see this man who's now become your brother ever again. And it was very hard to say goodbye, but we knew that there was a small chance that he'd be able to come to America. So Paul, he was my sponsor. So he signed all the documents before he left Iraq. And everybody that you talked to over there would say, it's literally next to impossible, don't even try. You know, we've heard of people trying to get interpreters over, it just doesn't work. And we knew that there's a very small, limited amount of visas that were being offered. So we kept calling and contacting everybody we could. And then finally one day... They called me and they said, you have a baggage. I opened it, my passport there. And when I opened my passport, the visa was issued in the passport. I was like, no, I'm, I'm just dreaming. The date of visa, it was like one week before I received it. So I took a picture right away, and I sent it to Paul. I get a text message from Philip, and it's a picture, and he's holding his visa. And I called him up, and I'm like, where are you? He's like, you know, buddy, I'm at home. I'm like, dude, you got to get to the airport as fast as you can so we can fly you out of there. Philip packs his bags. But now he has to say goodbye to his family. My two girls, they, they don't understand what's going on. It, they thought it's just just a short trip for me. But my son and my wife, they, they understand very well what's going on. It's, it's hard. A week later, Philip is on a plane to Minnesota, where he'll live with Paul. They haven't seen each other in three and a half years. When his flight lands, Philip was greeted by a local TV news crew and, of course, his old friend. After giving him a big hug and a handshake and, you know, God, here's my brother. I haven't seen him for years. I never thought I'd ever see him again. And here he's actually finally here in the United States, which is just unbelievable. It was so good to see Paul again. He found me a job. There's a senior home right front of the house. He just walked in and he told him, like, I have a friend. He comes from Iraq and he's looking for a job. And I'm still in that job. He gave me an idea about the culture here, the kind of people here. And the people of Minnesota, they are so nice. They make it easy for me. I never had a hard time in Minnesota or in America in general. At the Mall of America, they had a uh, choir that was singing Christmas carols. And we were standing, I think, on the third floor of the rotunda looking down. And I noticed that Philip started to cry. And I said, what's wrong? And he says, you have no fear here. All these people can get together and not worried about someone coming by 
and trying to blow them up. And then as the music continued, he kept on slightly weeping. And I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, I miss my family. And that's when we really went into overdrive to try and get his family here to the United States. Nearly two years after Philip arrived in Minnesota, he gets an email in the middle of the night. It's from the American Embassy in Baghdad, and it lists the visa information for his wife, his three daughters, and his son. He is ecstatic. He's finally going to see his family again. But they still need to get out of Iraq. Philip is a marked man, and he knows if the wrong person finds out he was an interpreter, his family may never make it to America. As we started getting more of the paperwork getting closer and closer, it became a lot more dangerous for Philip's family. And if they're caught with these documents, especially by the militia or by ISIS, they would be executed immediately. Every day you're wondering, is this when we're going to get a phone call or is this when we're going to get an email that his family was killed? Philip is a nervous wreck for a week before his family is supposed to arrive. But the day finally comes. And I meet Philip at the airport with my family, and then all of a sudden we get the message, his family's flight has landed. You know, my family, they never met Paul. They spoke to him over the phone. They love him so much, but they never met him. And Philip was just beside himself. Like Paul, they were like pushing me, step forward, your family coming, go greet them. I just stopped back and like I was watching my son coming down and I told Paul no. He says to me, I want you to be the first person to greet them and to meet my family. And his son was the first one to come down and come through those doors and just embrace in a, in a hug. It was very powerfully overwhelming. And his daughters came through and his wife and being able to finally hold them and touch them was very emotional. I love Paul from beginning, since I start to work with him, to, to get Paul as a friend and now as a brother, I'm proud of myself. Hey, Paul. Yeah. What do you call the camera and when you go to the baseball game or football game and the camera like the big screen zoom oh, in the, the jumbotron? Like the big TV screen? Yeah. Yeah, the jumbotron. I, I mean, when they like kiss, oh, shot. Kiss, kissing camera. Kissing camera. I love that. <laughs> the kissing camera. But unfortunately, every time, Paul, like the one who beside me, so I can't do it. <laughs> You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk builds software for better customer relationships. Now, war is one thing, but what about those small everyday battles that we all have to fight? at work, at home, with the cable company? And how do you make it so that both sides walk away feeling like they've won? 
Tempers often flare in pro sports and in business, too. And Ron Foxcroft knows both of these worlds very well. He's got some advice to help you keep a cool head in any situation. Ron is a former NCAA basketball referee, the inventor of the Fox 40 whistle, and the CEO and chairman of Fluke Transportation. The very first thing about refereeing is it's difficult. (laughs) It's challenging. There's many challenges. Uh, We, as professional referees, take our job as seriously as the players and as the coaches. There's just as much training, there's just as much preparation, and there's just as much just plain hard work. We lose up to 65% of our referee applicants after year three because of abuse, conflict, people not understanding that referees are human beings, they're not computers. Now, I've had it, and I've had coaches come at me pretty hard. I've had fans come at me pretty hard. But, you know, what you try and do is you try and put yourself in the position of the person that is disagreeing with you. And I learned very early in my uh, refereeing training, you have two ears and one mouth to use proportionately. Try and put yourself in his position and listen. The other thing is you have to bring the emotion down. In other words, time is a healer. And when there's a conflict, it's usually instantaneous and it's almost like a knee jerk. And you have to strategize on how you can get time between the the initial outburst and the dialogue and communication. What I did in basketball officiating, when a coach instantaneously went off uh, with anger, I would try to create some distance and time between his anger and my communication. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when, When he went off, it was knee jerk, it was instantaneous anger, and I would invent something that I had to do. For example, I would find something at the scorer's table that I had to administrate to create maybe only 30 seconds between the time of his outburst and the time that we start communication. I always started the communication by having him say yes. And, and what I meant by that was, Coach, you don't like the call that I just made. And the answer to that is yes. You get them saying something positive. And then I would say to the coach, Coach, you know, you could be right. Well, there's another yes. So now you have two positives in the dialogue, in the communication. And then the third time, the third uh, dialogue I would usually have is I would say, Coach, let me put myself in your shoes and understand where you're coming from. Would you allow me the same courtesy? And usually you can make headway when they say, yes, I'll allow you the same courtesy. So now you've had three positives. You've had three 
yeses, which is a very, very good thing. And then you work into the conversation, and all this happens over 30 seconds in a basketball game. You're not at a debating club where you have an hour. You have 30 seconds to make your point. Now, those skills that I learned in the officiating world, I've been able to transfer those skills into real life and into real business. When I'm at a boardroom table and we're having a professional, robust disagreement, and I wanna stress that, it's okay to have a disagreement. It's all right to have a robust disagreement, providing A, you're a good listener, B, you show respect to the person sitting on the other side of the table. And every time I've had a robust, healthy, professional disagreement in my business life, I try to stand up walk across the boardroom table and sit in his chair to understand where he's coming from. When you're having a robust emotional disagreement and you win 100% and the person on the other side of the boardroom table loses 100%, that's a lose on both sides. What you really need to do is to both people come away feeling, well, I won 50% and the person you're disagreeing with in this robust conversation won 50%, 50-50. You always strive to get a 50-50 so you both come away not necessarily agreeing with the other person, but, um, understanding the other person's point of view. If you want to learn more about managing conflict with your customers, visit relate.zendesk.com for a great article on this very subject. It's called Turn complainers into brand advocates. Find the love. You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk helps your business turn interactions into lasting relationships. Conflict is the theme of this episode of Relate. And here's a story about a young boy who grew up in the projects of Brixton a neighborhood of London, and how one violent encounter led him on a path to become a gang leader. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. Remember when you got your first bike? It was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Carl Locko got his when he was 11. I loved this thing. It was just, yeah, it was God's gift to me, you know. I would ride it usually in Kenneton Park. As I said, my parents were very protective, so they would they only let me play out in the park while everyone else... Was Carl grew up in Brixton, the, the a low-income and underserved area of London. He lived in a subsidised apartment block. They call them estates in the UK. The estate is the park for the majority, you know, but I would go 
to an actual park to, to play. I remember this time round, um, I didn't actually ride my bike in the park. I was riding it around the area that I lived in and then... Um, His parents told him the estate grounds were off limits. They'd heard that local kids were involved with gang activity there. Carl would normally obey his parents. But his bike gave him freedom. He figured he could get away fast if there was trouble. But one afternoon, another boy stopped him in his tracks. Told me he wants my bike, basically. But I wasn't about to let go. Because this wasn't just a bike. This was my parents. Even at that age, I understood the reality that money was hard to come by and that they had to work really hard to be able to buy me this. So I was like, I can't let go of it. So as a result, I ended up getting punched in the face. I just remember riding off with the bike, just tasting the blood in my mouth. This was the moment when he decided to make a change. I was like, this can't continue. This just can't go on. So I have to fix this. Carl Locko was a problem solver from an early age. When he was only 11, he was known as one of the smartest kids in his school. But his intelligence led him to a disturbing revelation. I started to kind of get some insights that part of the system didn't serve those coming from my demographic. Prior, I was under the illusion that if you got good grades and did what's right, that, you know, there's going to be a level of social mobility. That kind of facade disintegrated. He needed to find a way to get out of the high-rises, out of Brixton, out of poverty. The majority of people's parents would work 12-hour days and still not have enough. You know, the only ones that had a level of financial freedom in our communities were those that were doing it through criminality, whether drug dealing or, or what be it. It became my ambition to be a part of this collective. From 12 years old, I was like, wow, I need to get involved. But Carl didn't have any connections to any of the established gangs. How was he going to get in? I ended up banding together with other young men that was tired of their situation also. I wanted to feel like they belonged to something and I created something. And I said, look, this is ours. And that was the first gang that I was ever in, was a gang that I actually had created. By the time he was 13, Carl and his gang, they were being noticed. The police had found a photo with evidence of criminal activity. A photo that was key to Carl Locko's rise as a gang leader. Then about six months later, the press got hold of it. And we were on the front page of the major tabloids in the country because it was like 13-year-olds with a working pump-action shotgun. This gave Carl some serious street cred. It was what I had wanted. It made it out like I was this real thing. I was just basking in the glory of it, if I'm going to be honest. The shotgun was fake, so they all got off scot-free. And the experience didn't scare Carl. In fact, it pushed him deeper into gang life. By the time I was 15, the young men that I was actually running with those were my brothers. Carl was a strong leader. He pitched an idea to another gang that they joined forces. Yeah, that's when things really started getting going. By 15, I felt like I was a man. and I felt like I had become, you know, I felt like I was capable of doing certain things. But by 16, he saw his close friend murdered. We, we were brothers by this time. It was a big blow. There was an altercation of some sort. One thing led to another. And he ended up 
getting fatally stabbed, you know, it was, yeah, like, I remember the blood leaving his body at such a rate that it propelled his T-shirt into the air because it had touched his heart. It's just heavy, it was just heavy, but it didn't deter any of us. It just gave us a reason for rage. It wasn't, oh, we need to stop this. It was, no, we need more guns. Or no, we need more knives. Or we need less remorse. By the time I was 17, I would say, I was in my prime. Carl no longer felt the need to leave Brixton because he was the king of Brixton in his eyes and nothing could stop him. His parents begged him to stop. His teachers avoided him. But the violence in his life just made him more angry and more deeply involved. And yet, deep in the back of his mind, something started to shift. I think there were some seeds that were sown before me saying that, you know what, this is not for me. There was no justice. You know, it just felt very empty. And these feelings, like I would feel them, but I didn't know what to do with them, you know, or even how to articulate them. And even if I didn't know how to, who to speak to. Thankfully, there was one woman who wanted to speak to him, a pastor named Mimi. Her son was in the same gang, and she was looking for ways to get these boys out. She felt that if she could maybe reach me, that she could reach him. One of her first major breakthroughs was with me. She would never speak from a place of judgment. She embodied love. She always was able to differentiate between me and the activity. She would say, that's an idea, it's an action, but that's not you. Your core, your soul, your spirit, who you are, that's not it. Over several months, she was able to convince Carl that this lifestyle did not define him. He finally came to realize that he wanted to get out. Now he had to tell the other gang members. This was especially hard because they were family to him. By separating myself, I did see that as me betraying them. He decided to be honest with them. He sat down with each member to explain where he was coming from. I just basically would be like, you know what? I don't believe in this. For the sake of love, I just can't live this way. I can't, I can't do it. And I hope you understand. And... They did understand. The majority did. These are not like animals, like feral creatures. These are young men and women that believed the lie, responded to circumstances in a way that they thought the outcome would be best. And essentially, they just wanted me to be happy. Carl used the ambition and leadership he fostered in gang culture and applied it to activism to influencing policies to help gang members get out of the lifestyle, to treat them less as criminals and more like addicts in need of help and in need of positive relationships. Carl has shot to the top of the activist world. He's given a TED Talk and represents social campaigns backed by people like Richard Branson. He admits his life feels a little surreal at times. Um, getting on private jets, going to private islands... He's now financially secure enough to leave Brixton. Thing is, he doesn't want to. In fact, he recently laid down deeper roots and bought a house around the corner from where his parents still live. Um, that, that there, Mimi's Diner, that restaurant, that's actually past the Mimi's shop. 
I am well and truly a Brixton boy, if I'm going to be honest. It's difficult because I've had a bit of an identity crisis, being flung from polar extremes, you know? But I definitely still feel very much at home in Brixton. How's it going, top fan? While he's walking, Carl is interrupted by a guy who stops him on the street to congratulate him on some of the work he's done. Carl explains that the man is a former gang member himself, someone else who turned his life around and now runs a football club for kids. They have their own special bond. He's one of the few friends who's been with him in his old life and his new one. it for Relate this time around. In two weeks, we'll have another episode for you on starting over. Say, for example, you lost your job or you had to move to a new community and you had to rethink everything about your life. Well, we've got some remarkable stories about people who had to start their lives over from scratch and totally reinvented themselves in the process. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out. And for more articles on connecting to your customers in deeper ways, visit relate.zendesk.com. And if you want to explore technology built to improve your customer interactions, head over to zendesk.com for a free trial. I'm Tamara Stanners. Talk to you soon.